This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as I pulled up the uh, fire engines and um, ambulance and police cars were swinging by me, and I said, "Oh my goodness, what am I walking into?" So I'm glad that uh, glad that everyone's safe and that um, we are not in what is it, Mendel? Is that the name? Mendel. Yeah. I'd be outside fighting with the wind for your attention. Um, so first, let me thank uh, Villanova for asking me to come and, and give a talk um, this month. And what I'm going to do is to talk a little bit, to offer um, a piece of my research. I'm writing this second book um, called Never Caught, and I'm thrilled by the poster. I thought the posters were great for, um, for me. I'm swiping one, taking it home. Um, and basically, this second book um, backs me up in time a little bit. I do mostly the 19th century, mid-19th century, um, at least that's what the first book was on. And this one is making me think more about the colonial period, about um, the early republic. And I never, ever thought I would be hanging out with George Washington so much, or at least um, him and Martha and... Um, you know, here I am, um, spending a lot of time thinking about Mount Vernon, thinking about um, their time in New York uh, once uh, he was um, elected as the first president, uh, and then in Philadelphia. Um, and while there, I don't know how many biographies on George Washington, 
um, I feel super special to be able to think about um, the executive mansion, what was before the White House, um, and to think about the president, to think about slavery um, under George Washington, um, under Martha Washington, um, but also to think about Ona Judge in particular, because she's just this fascinating person. Whenever you're writing biography, uh, you either sort of fall in love with whoever it is you're studying or you end up hating them at the end. So luckily I'm not hating Ona Judge yet. Um, I'm uh, appreciative. So what I'll do is I'm going to give a sort of normal um, talk and hopefully my pictures will appear properly on the um, uh, on the screen. And um, I guess we're supposed to do questions at the end, but if there's something burning inside of your soul that you just need me to answer, just shout out, raise your hand, and of course, um, I'll oblige. So, um, Ona Judge was born sometime around 1774. We're not quite sure, of course, um, all slave births were not recorded. Uh, but we can surmise from, from other evidence that, that she was born around the Revolutionary Era um, at Mount Vernon. She was uh, a slave uh, belonging to George and Martha Washington's uh, estate. Technically, um, she wasn't George Washington's slave. Technically, she was uh, Martha Washington's slave. And for those of you who, I'll give you this sort of lowdown quickly, um, Martha and George married, but it was Martha's second husband. George was not her first husband. Did you all know that? Yeah. So um, George was her second husband. Her first husband um, ended up being a, a sort of relatively wealthy tobacco planner in Virginia. Um, he died, like everybody did in the colonial period in Virginia, um, and left Martha Washington, a relatively young widow, uh, with slaves. Uh, and so when she married Washington, she, Washington became one of the wealthier families in Virginia. He was not that on his own. So he sort of, he married up. Um, and Ona Judge, her mother, was owned by Martha Washington and by her first husband. So technically, she was never owned by Washington. He, uh, because he was a male, he... Uh, managed Martha Washington's estate and her property, but Ona what was called um, what was known as a dower slave. So technically, although George Washington oversaw the estate and all of the slaves, uh, she was not his. She was Martha Washington's. Um, so they lived in rural Virginia towards the end of the colonial period. And they ended up traveling, of course, to New York, to the busy cities of New York and um, Philadelphia during the infant years of the new nation. Uh, Judge made a bold and risky decision. And her bold and risky decision was to run away. And she did. She ran away, and I'll talk um, about this. Uh, she ended up in a sort of quiet little um, hamlet near Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire. When I first started researching, I'm like, New Hampshire? Who goes, what fugitive goes to New Hampshire in 1796? But Mona Judge did. 
Um, and she remained there until her death in 1848. So she outlives um, George Washington by almost 50 years, um, as well as Martha Washington. Although they were the most revered family, one could argue, in America, George and Martha Washington were never able to recapture her. They knew where she was. They sent people to go get her, uh, but she remained free. Um, and today my talk focuses on the escape of Ona Judge, um, who I really think is one of the most understudied fugitive slaves um, and we often sort of talk about Frederick Douglass or Harriet Jacobs. You probably read them. Um, hopefully you read them in um, some of your classes, but we don't often hear about Ona Judge. So um, welcome to uh, a crash course on Ona Judge and on, as I said, one of the most understudied fugitive slaves in America. The, the book, and hopefully you'll see today, complicates um, what slavery and freedom looked like in the 18th and 19th century. Uh, it was, uh, as I said, complicated. Um, and to think that President George Washington could never recapture this woman is really pretty fascinating. Pictures working? Fabulous. I don't know if you can read it from where you are. This is an image of, um, I guess we would consider the sort of second White House, the first um, house that Washington and uh, Martha, uh, George Washington and Martha Washington moved into was in New York, because that's, of course, where um, the first um, capital was. But shortly after, um, about a year and a half after moving to New York, they moved to Philadelphia. This is the image of, an image of the, the executive mansion uh, in Philadelphia, where George Washington spent the majority of his uh, presidency. And it was also the home from which Ona Judge would escape. So I'll start, well, that's uh, a bit of a sort of brief introduction, and I'll, um, I want to talk a little bit about her actual uh, escape. So February of 1796, we have a, uh, Ona feels a palpable unease in the executive mansion. There's a thick tension that prompted Ona Judge and the other enslaved companions in Philadelphia to tread very lightly around George and Martha Washington. Enslaved men and women always moved about their days with caution, not knowing what events could sour or sweeten a master's mood. For slaves who resided within the same walls of their master, life could be like walking through a field with landmines. The unpredictability of everyday life forced slaves to perform their tasks with agility, staying one step ahead of their master. The smallest of things um, could really affect a slave's life. So the accidental breaking of a dish, uh, inconveniently um, timed bad weather, could alter a master's mood and could therefore affect um, the life of a slave. Although Washington did not earn a reputation as a violent or physically punishing slave owner, he did on occasion lose his temper. Judge maneuvered through her daily tasks with watchfulness, 
and she attended to Martha Washington in February with a little extra care. She helped her dress for the day. Uh, she was in charge of sort of very intimate duties. She would um, help her dress. She would um, take care of her hair, prep her hair, help her bathe. Uh, these very kind of intimate responsibilities. Judge knew her mistress well. Uh, and all who knew the Washingtons on a personal level were familiar with Judge. She often accompanied Martha Washington on her social calls. So she became sort of well-known, Martha Washington and Ona Judge, in New York and in Philadelphia. The First Lady's life was filled with socializing and public events. This is something she was unaccustomed to, um, having come from um, a sort of laid-back Mount Vernon. The Washington social calendar was quite full. There was an upcoming birth night ball um, in February to honor the president's 65th birthday. And Judge understood that her mistress uh, was concerned. She was worried, she was nervous that February of 1796. Martha Washington cared a great deal about her grandchildren. Um, and um, not obsessed with her grandchildren, but a great deal of emphasis went into sort of thinking about them. Martha Washington had outlived every single one of her children. Um, she had children with her first husband, and here's another sort of interesting fact. Um, while she had children with her first husband, she never had children with George Washington. So he had no heirs, technically, of um, his own or biological heirs. So she outlived all of her children. Two of them had died before their fifth birthdays. Two older children were lost during um, adult, young adulthood, and it sort of left Martha Washington devastated. And she had no choice but really to look towards her grandchildren. She was 27 years old when she married Washington. There's a bit about how um, difficult it must have been that their union never um, uh, resulted in uh, children. And with her own children dying from her first marriage, she eventually brings in two of her grandchildren and raises them at the White House in um, Philadelphia. And uh, George Washington accepted them as his, as his own. So Ona Judge witnessed the shock and concern of her masters when after they read through the mail on February 6th of 1796, the president received a letter from his older step-granddaughter, Elizabeth, 19 years old. Uh, she was called Betsy by some as well as Eliza. And she was informing her grandparents of her intention to marry. Eliza wrote of her engagement to a man named Thomas Law. He was, long story short, a British guy, he was old, he was like 20 years older than her. Um, and he had come to Washington, D.C. He was involved in kind of land speculation, slightly shady character. The Washingtons knew nothing about him. And really, he sort of had this torrid uh, whirlwind romance with Eliza. And here she is writing to her grandparents saying, well, we're getting married. Um, and sort of not asking for permission but saying, we're going to get married. Um, and, and George and Martha were not pleased at all about this announcement. And it sent the executive mansion into a tailspin. 
This was personal family business. But everyone who lived within the walls of the White House, of the executive mansion, including owner Judge, knew what was happening. Judge had to negotiate the boundaries between being a house slave, at, between the relationship between a house slave and a slave master. It was intricate. It made her privy to the most intimate and delicate events of her owners' lives. Um, slaves were there at the births of babies, at um, the deaths of spouses, at the announcement of engagements. And they often had to um, change their attitudes, the way they interacted with their owners, based upon these kind of very happy or sometimes delicate situations. Sometimes slave owners looked to their slaves for good counsel, uh, most certainly for comfort. Judge was most likely left with consoling her mistress. Neither George nor Martha, Martha Washington knew about how serious the relationship was, and they were concerned. They thought Eliza's too young. Uh, she barely knows this man. He's come uh, from uh, England via India, where he had spent a good number of years. Uh, they've only known each other for maybe a year, and were worried that um, he's going to want her to leave and to go to England and, to, and that they would lose um, their granddaughter. The other thing that upset the Washingtons was that Thomas Law arrived in America with two of his three children, uh, boys, both of whom were the offspring of a relationship with an Indian woman. They were biracial. So an old guy with biracial kids in 1796, who they don't know, who's a little shady, and he's about to run off with the president's granddaughter. Things were tense at the Washington's residence. Judge herself uh, was still a young woman, about the same age as Eliza, and really was unable to provide any kind of informed comfort for Martha. Older, more seasoned slaves were expected to offer uh, this kind of comfort or advice. Uh, she was unable to do so. The laws of Virginia denied Judge the ability to live within a legal marriage. As a slave, your marriage was not recognized in the state of Virginia or anywhere else throughout the South. Therefore, she had no practical advice to offer her mistress. But it was Judge's youth that provided Martha with some consolation. Judge was young, she was, but she was competent, and Martha Washington watched her mature into a faithful house slave, or what she presumed was a faithful house slave. Um, Martha Washington watched her. She was skilled on a daily basis, and, and perhaps this made her feel, well, Maybe Eliza isn't too young to marry. Maybe with some help, she can navigate this relationship. So Judge watched her owners feel their way through this, the dramatic events of 1796. And eventually, Martha and George come around. Uh, they accept the marriage. They have no choice but to do so, because Eliza's already decided to marry. 
uh, and they do on Mar in March of 1796. And this marriage signals the beginning of major changes for the Washingtons and for their slaves. Judge most certainly knew that her time in Philadelphia was limited by this March wedding of Eliza. The news of the president's retirement was also uh, no longer a secret. So the slaves knew that they would, in the summer, return to Mount Vernon. This was something that happened frequently. They would go home for the summer to Mount Vernon, <coughs> excuse me, and return to Philadelphia um, at the end of the summer. Uh, but Washington was announcing in 1796 that he would not run for a third term. There was no cap on terms then. Um, so the slaves knew, really, there's probably only maybe a year left um, in Philadelphia. For some, this may have been, um, this might have been good news. They were returning home to their family members at Mount Vernon, um, to, the way, to their way of life that they had been uh, accustomed to uh, prior to the seven years that they had lived in Philadelphia. But for some, including Judge, they had lived in Philadelphia. Philadelphia, by 1796, had a very strong free black population. Slavery was all but dead by 1796. So although she was enslaved, and although she lived with um, several other companions who were enslaved at the executive mansion, she was one of very few in Philadelphia who were still considered the property of another person. And that's something really kind of interesting to think about. Washington, who's sort of seen as this venerated, this venerable president, um, comes into Philadelphia, a city that's pretty much ended slavery, almost by then, and he brings his slaves with him from Mount Vernon and has no desire um, to leave behind um, his slaves or to do without slave labor while he's, while he's there. Judge lived this sort of weird life in this gray zone. She was a slave, but she was in a city that was free. One of the great things about um, Judge is that she leaves behind several interviews. Um, this is, of course, taken much uh, later on in her life, towards the end of her life, uh, but this uh, interview appears in The Liberator, uh, probably the most famous or well-known abolitionist newspapers of the 19th century. So what's great about Judge is that we, st we have her words. Um, she's illiterate. She never learns to read or write, uh, but she gives this oral interview to um, uh, the Liberator as well as to several other uh, New England newspapers later on in her life. And in these interviews, Judge never mentions a desire to return to Virginia. She never says um, that she was attached to Mount Vernon. She'd spent seven years in New York and Philadelphia. And these were years she was 16 or so, 15 or 16, we think, uh, when she arrived in New York. She grew up in the North, not in Virginia. Uh, she became a woman in New York and Philadelphia. And this idea of returning to Mount Vernon was something that she never ever talked about sort of longingly. The only thing that she may have been concerned about was that she would never see her mother or sister again if she chose to run away. Her mother's name was Betty Davis. She remained at Mount Vernon 
and had the expectation of being reunited one day with her daughter, Ona. Judge's sister, named Delphi, uh, also remained at the plantation in, at Mount Vernon. Uh, and she and her mother spent their days sewing for the Washingtons. Judge also had two sisters, uh, Nancy and Lucinda. We don't really know what happened to them. They are, they're in Washington's records and then they disappear. Um, and because we don't have a record of them being sold, it's very likely that they died, um, that they were deceased uh, relatively young. So that by 1796, the only folks remaining at Mount Vernon that were directly connected to Ona Judge was her mother, or her mother and her sister. And um, Judge was concerned about her mother, and she was concerned about... Um, what Washington thought about her mother. And these concerns were well-founded. The year before, in 1795, Washington wrote kind of with anger and animosity about Judge's mother. The president accused Betty Davis of pretending to be ill, of being lazy, of um, occasional uh, bad behavior. And all of which, all of these offenses could be punished by the threat of sale. The likelihood of Betty Davis fetching a high price at auction was low. She was older. She was beyond her reproductive peak. She wasn't going to have any more children. But Judge knew that his, her mother was not in the good graces of her master, another reason that she may have been concerned um, about running off. But if Judge did return to Mount Vernon once the president retired, what kind of life would she have? What would her duties um, include? And some of them would be more typical responsibilities of house slaves in um, the rural South that were very physically taxing. And although Judge was a slave in Philadelphia, she was accustomed to a certain kind of labor. She was not... Um, uh, Washington had slaves, but he also hired quite a few servants because there was absolutely no way he could um, make it with the seven to nine slaves he shuttled in and out of his home. So the kind of labor in which Ona engaged was very different from what she had experienced at Mount Vernon. As I said, she was sort of she was known as a Was uh, Martha Washington's kind of main house. Um, servant or body servant was another term we see used over and over again. But being this house servant, although she lived under this kind of microscope of life, she lived with her owners. So it was very little kind of peeling away from them. They, uh, when she was in New York, she lived on the third floor in the attic and they lived on the second floor. So, you know, space was sort of tight. Um, in Philadelphia as well, she lived with, in the house with her owner. So she didn't have much time to herself. But because the Washingtons had this very demanding social schedule, sometimes she did have private time, time where she could talk with other slaves, where she could practice her needlework, where she could talk with servants, learn about sort of free life in Philadelphia. And all of these things were very important in terms of informing her as um, an enslaved person. All of this would come to a screeching stop if she returned to Mount Vernon. It became clear that uh, when everyone returned to Mount Vernon for the summer of 1796, that Ona Judge would not return to Philadelphia. 
uh, Martha Washington's deep concern for her granddaughter uh, trumped everything. And she decided Eliza has no idea what she's getting herself into. She was pregnant by then. She kind of got pregnant quickly, was married. No one knew this guy. And so she said, let me do as a grandmother what I think is best for her. I'm going to give Ona Judge to my granddaughter. It's a gift. She's my best slave. She takes care of me. She will take care of Eliza and the child on the way. And um, I won't have to worry about her as much um, without her there. Ona knew that um, life would change drastically. Eliza was known as being a lady with a temper. She was quick. She was short. Um, her family members joked that uh, she wished she could wear, her, wear the pants um, of the family, that she made decisions, but that she was also kind of had a volcanic temper. Martha Washington may have been a lot of things, but she was not someone known for having a volcanic temper. And Ona knew her life was about to change uh, once she left the Washington's home. The other thing that uh, Ona may have been very concerned about was Thomas Law. All slave women worried um, about their personal safety. Thomas Law was somewhat of a wild card. He had made a good deal of money in India. He seemed kind of, no one really knew who he was, but that wouldn't have affected or worried Judge. She would have been more concerned about Law's principles, about his behavior, especially given the knowledge of his illegitimate children. Law arrived in America with two of his three sons. They were the outcome of a lengthy relationship with an Indian woman. Biracial children were far from uncommon in Mount Vernon. Judge herself was the product of such a union. So Ona's mother was Betty Davis. She was a slave passed down through Martha's first husband. But her father's name was Andrew Judge, hence the surname Judge. Andrew Judge was a white servant who had indentured servant who had come to Mount Vernon, 1772, three, um, and worked at Mount Vernon. So Washington had uh, purchased his contract of servitude. And it's very clear that he had a relationship with Betty Davis. Uh, Ona Judge is the only slave with the surname Judge on the records, uh, on Washington's records. He actually kept pretty good um, slave records, and um, I've been able to track Andrew Judge throughout uh, Virginia. He eventually leaves, uh, finishes his contract of servitude, becomes a, a free man, and owns his own slaves. We don't have a record or any kind of evidence that he maintained a relationship with Ona. She never mentions him, um, but he's the only judge around. And given also the description of what Ona Judge looked like, it's very clear that she was of mixed racial descent. So uh, biracial children were somewhat common throughout uh, Virginia and other parts of the South. For female slaves, 
um, a master's sexual desires were always a threat. And Judge wondered if she would become the victim of a new master with a sexual interest that fell outside of the realm of his own marriage. Slave women were at the mercy of their male owners. And for women like Judge, who worked in the close proximity of the household, there'd be very little opportunity to avoid her master. The realities of rape, of forced breeding, um, no matter a slave woman's position, uh, was well known. This was something that young girls were schooled in, young slave girls were schooled in as early as the age of eight. Uh, for those of you who may have read Harriet Jacobs, um, she talks about um, how difficult it is to be a young girl and have to be told um, to worry about rape and how to attempt to avoid it. So this must have weighed heavily on Judge's mind. The decision to hand Judge over to Eliza was also a reminder that this slave woman had no control over her own life after she had lived in free Philadelphia for seven years. The president himself remained very vigilant about all of his slaves. Um, some had run off, and if they escaped during the 1780s and 90s, the punishment was relatively steep. Um, you could be sold. Uh, he sold several slaves who were disobedient or attempted to run away to the West Indies, and that was sort of like a death sentence in the 1790s. If you were sold to the West Indies from Virginia, you pretty much knew uh, life was, was done. So she knew that a decision to try and run away would probably end with, if it was not successful, end with sale, end with her on the auction block. There were changes in the law in 1793, which is so ironic. Washington is, you know, creates this fugitive slave law, right, in 1793, which says, oh, the slaves, if you run away, uh, slave owners have the right to cross state lines um, and recapture their slaves. And then, of course, Washington's own slaves are attempting to run away at the same time. Judge knew that um, it was, that she was, uh, Judge had fear in her heart and confusion about running away. In her interview, when she learned about the change in her ownership, she made up her mind to leave the Washingtons, but only after consulting with free blacks. And she'd become acquainted with them during Philadelphia, and in her interview, she states, Whilst they were, meaning the Washingtons, packing up to go to Virginia, I was packing to go. I didn't know where, for I knew that if I went back to Virginia, I should never get my liberty. I had friends among the colored people of Philadelphia, had my things carried there beforehand, and left the Washingtons' house while they were eating dinner. Judge explained that she was uncertain about her route or her final destination, on her fugitive flight. But she had cultivated this great um, community of free blacks. And the more recent scholarship ties her escape to the well-known Richard Allen of Philadelphia, founder of Mother Bethel um, Church, and sort of well-known for being a part of the free black community. He himself was a chimney sweep. He was a minister, of course, founded the church, 
but had his own chimney sweep business. And all of the records from Washington show us that the Washington's executive mansion, they were customers of Richard Allen. Richard Allen came and cleaned out the chimneys. And it would have been there that he ran into Ona Judge. He was known for helping people escape. Um, Judge never reveals the names of these sort of famous, well-known colored friends um, who helped her, help her run away. But it's strongly believed that Richard Allen was one of them, that uh, perhaps they offered money um, and definitely direction. The other interesting thing is that uh, Washington's records show that on May 10th of 1796, Ona Judge received money from Washington. He received, she received money she needed to purchase supposedly a new pair of shoes. If I were running away, I'd probably buy a new pair of shoes too. Um, the records show Ona got money to go purchase her own shoes. Well, guess what the other thing was that Richard Allen did? He owned a shoe shop. So, you know, all of these things are sort of coming together. And, you know, when you're doing African-American and women's history in particular in this time period, we often don't have documents that say, this is what happened or this is what happened. We have to read between the lines and sort of try to bring things together. And so the recent scholarship suggests that if Alan wasn't directly involved in giving her shoes or what have you, he was involved as well as the other free black um, residents of Philadelphia, Ona Judge says it, uh, in her escape. Judge was careful and her intentions to escape Remain undetected, remained undetected by her owners. Uh, in her interview, Judge made reference to the fact that while everyone else was packing up to get ready to go to Mount Vernon, she was too. She just didn't tell them uh, that she wasn't planning on going back to Virginia. Judge knew that the moment she walked out of the president's mansion that her status as a trusted house slave for the most powerful American family would immediately come to an end. No longer was Judge the favored mistress, uh, slave for her mistress. Instead, she became a fugitive. And she went to extremes to protect herself from laws, federal laws, from vicious slave catchers. And with the help of unnamed friends, uh, she, she ran away. Let's, I'm, I'm, I know I'm running low on time. Uh, I want to show you the advertisement that was placed, I don't know if you can see it that well, but that was placed in the Pennsylvania Gazette, uh, May 23rd, 1796. And so eventually the Washingtons realized, oh Lord, she ran off and she's not coming back. Um, it was highly unlikely that she possessed any intention to return. There had never been a note in, the, in any of uh, Washington's records that she had run off before. Uh, and this was two weeks before their scheduled return to Mount Vernon, where she was going to be given over to Eliza for good. So it sort of makes sense that she's run away at this point. Uh, it was much more difficult for slaves to escape from the South. It was a longer journey. Oftentimes they were very unprepared. This was Ona's moment. This was the moment for her to find her freedom, uh, and she did. So on the 23rd of May, Frederick Kitt, who was the steward, the household steward to George Washington, places this ad in the Pennsylvania Gazette. So this is, this is a little embarrassing, right? 
here's the president of the United States who's got to put an ad in the newspaper founded by Ben Franklin that his slave woman is run away. He doesn't know where she is. He needs a little help getting her back. And the ad, I'll sort of read, I don't think you can really see it that well, but the ad describes Ona Judge, sort of physically, uh, announces to the world that she's defied the president. And it says, quote, absconded from the household of the president of the United States, Oni Judge, O-N-E-Y, is usually the way we see her name written. That was the sort of diminutive, like, oh, my little Oni. I use her name, Ona, um, instead. Oni Judge, a light mulatto girl, much freckled with very black eyes and bushy hair. She's of middle stature, slender and delicately formed, about 20 years of age. So they've offered this physical description um, of her. You know, this is like America's most wanted minus the picture, right? This is, this is who this woman is. Uh, Judge's runaway ad went on to describe the possessions she had packed and that she'd sent off um, who helped her, her to her African-American free friends. The ad noted that Judge had many changes of good clothes of all sorts, but not sufficiently, sufficiently, sufficiently recollected to be described. Unlike the majority of runaway slaves, Judge was not confronted with a lack of adequate clothing as a slave. She, had, she was very well dressed. She was in the president's house. She accompanied Martha on her social calls. She uh, was not uh, ill-prepared, and we know she had a new pair of shoes. Fed Frederick Kitt's ad in the Pennsylvania Gazette alerted slave catchers to Judge's probable escape route, escape route the Delaware River. In his advertisement, Kit said a strong warning to anyone who worked on the docks of Philadelphia's busy port, stating, quote, but as she may attempt to escape by water, all matters of vessels are cautioned against admitting her onto them. And they were right. Judge, that is how Judge escaped. Now, there's some sort of question about whether or not uh, she ran away immediately or if she hid out in, in um, Philadelphia for some time. I think it's very probable that she left immediately. Uh, it was against the law for anyone to help her escape. So the longer she stayed in Philadelphia, uh, the hotter things would be. She could not go to New York, another hotbed destination for fugitives, because she was known there too. She'd lived there uh, before Philadelphia. Judge told of her journey to Portsmouth, New Hampshire on a vessel that was commanded by Captain John Bowles. I've traced Bowles. I know when and where, when he left um, the docks in um, New Hampshire. He left on a ship called the Nancy. Um, he allowed Judge to board. We don't know if she paid him or not. She would have had extras, had some money. Washington liked to give his slaves money on occasion uh, as gifts, um, tokens of his um, appreciation. But in any case, we know that she boarded his ship and probably did so um, towards uh, the end of May. Uh, Bowles probably left Philadelphia uh, around May 17th, went back to New Hampshire, and then returned at a sort of repeat trip to Philadelphia. He sold leather goods. Um, and sort of had the shipping business back and forth. Now, of course, he took a risk letting Ona Judge board. It's, he wasn't an abolitionist. 
He wasn't a guy that was putting his life on the line to help end slavery. That was not who he was. He was a businessman. Now, did he know that something was probably up with Ona Judge? Yes. Here's this single woman who, uh, according, according to the description, she was identifiably or phenotypically biracial, but there were some descriptions of her looking white, some looking copper colored. The likelihood was he knew she was running from something or someone. She was a woman traveling on her own. Um, she was illiterate, so if she had a pass or she had some kind of documentation, it was written by someone else, not by her. In any case, he allowed her to board the ship Nancy and um, took on this unusual passenger. Judge made her way to freedom uh, and spent the rest of her days in Greenland, New Hampshire. She evaded Washington's slave catchers, because he did go after her, for the entirety of her life. She managed to build a family for herself. What I have up here, which you probably can't see back there, um, this is a copy of the marriage announcement that I found in the New Hampshire Gazette of Ona Judge and her husband, Jack Staines, also called John, so you can see it um, in this town, Mr. John Staines to Miss Oni Judge. It's, of course, spelled differently. Okay, this is January of 1797. So in less than a year, she has left Philadelphia. She's escaped from the president, got married, and it appeared in the newspaper. Ona Judge uh, worked at finding and making a family for herself. She married Jack Staines. He was a free black uh, sailman, sa uh, sailor. She had children. She worked as a domestic until the end of her days. Uh, and although she endured the trials of poverty and fugitive status until her death in 1848, Judge moved forward. Her life was a difficult one, but freedom was worth it. Thank you. So uh, I think, do we have time if there, I know that I had to kind of boogie through the end um, and not give you all the details about her escape um, or Washington, but if there are any questions, I'm happy to, um, to answer them. I, have you been able to find out if she um, participates in any political activities in New Hampshire after she was Great question. Um, she didn't participate in what we would probably call political activity. She wasn't, uh, she didn't join up with um, sort of the 19th century abolitionist movement. What's interesting though is, and let me sort of go back um, to her if I can, it's not letting me. Well, I'll talk about it. Her um, interview, which appears in The Liberator, it was there a second ago. Her um, interview, which appears in The Liberator, appears the same year that Frederick Douglass's narrative comes out, right? So uh, we can, and she becomes sort of known as uh, when folks were sort of traveling through uh, 
New Hampshire, Greenland is right outside of, of Portsmouth, she becomes, sort of has this folksy reputation. They're like, oh, you know, the little old black lady was George Washington's slave. You might, so people would go to her house and she would sort of tell stories about her time as a slave um, for the Washingtons. She would tell, um, she would sort of, and they would sort of offer her little bits of money. Um, but she never became a sort of public figure. And the reason, one of the reasons that she couldn't was because she was still a fugitive until the day she died. She was never set free. Because remember, Washington doesn't own her. So when Washington dies, he dies in 1799. He says, okay, all my slaves will be set free when Martha dies. Okay, so Martha doesn't want to sleep with her one eye open for the rest of her life, so she sets his slaves free, right? I would do the same thing. Um, she sets, sets his slaves free, not her own. So most of Martha Washington's slaves that were owned by her were willed to her heirs once she died. So technically, although she was, Ona was free living in New Hampshire, she wasn't. She was technically a fugitive slave um, until her death. So for very practical and legal reasons, she couldn't be involved in that. But I'm, I'm also not certain that that was, um, you know, that was her road uh, in life. She was um, an impoverished woman. She lived as a domestic, which is what most black women in uh, the North could and did do. Uh, the only thing that was sort of left for them to do, um, as I said, she was illiterate. Um, so she be she is one of the most understudied fugitive slaves because she's not this kind of public person. She's not Harriet Jacob. She's not Frederick Douglass. She's an everyday woman, fugitive woman who's run away. She just happened to run away from one of the most you know well-known, important people um, in the country. Thank you so much. This is fascinating, you know, story. Okay. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really stunned. You know, I'm still thinking about the idea that Honor is able to escape from Philadelphia and head to New Hampshire, and President Washington was aware of where she was and wasn't able to retrieve her from there. I guess for time you didn't get into that. Right. Is there any way which can you know what kinds of efforts really? Washington he, to he tried to get her back um, at first and there's lovely correspondence between him um, the customs office in uh, in Portsmouth uh, and his own secretary uh, Tobias Lear about trying to reclaim recapture her but Washington knew he was kind of treading on very delicate territory while slavery was not yet illegal or completely abolished in New Hampshire it wasn't a, it wasn't a big thing it was on its way out and we don't have a sort of very strident abolitionist movement in in um, New Hampshire but he's not really trying to make this very public so he writes in his letters you know if you can get her and do this kind of surreptitiously, that would be the best thing, and then put her on a boat in the middle of the night and bring her back to Alexandria, and we'll handle it. And that's the way Washington, of course, in much more eloquent fashion, uh, writes about this um, to the folks, to the customs collector, to the governor um, of 
um, New Hampshire. And we're not quite certain if it's defiance of kind of federal authority or if it is this kind of latent abolitionist feeling or sentiment, but they kind of ignore him. They say, oh, well, we tried to get her back, but she refused. And actually, there's this interesting interaction where Ona Judge does meet with the customs collector, and he says, she supposedly says, I'll go back if they give me my freedom. So here's this black woman. It's 1796. She's like 21, 22. She's a slave. She's run away. And she's negotiating with the president of the United States for her freedom and says, I'm not going to come back unless you set me free. And of course, Washington's like, are you crazy? I can't do that. That's setting a precedent for the hundreds of others who are at Mount Vernon. And by the way, he quickly shuffles his slaves who are in Philadelphia back to Mount Vernon after this event because he's worried that they'll, they're going to run off too. You know, they'll, they'll do exactly the same thing. So she says, fine, I'm not going. And he sends his nephew up to come and get her, Burwell Bassett, and there's, she recounts the story of him pounding on the cabin door to try and recapture her, but that she's given word from uh, Senator Langdon's house. We don't know if it's Langdon or we, if it's his own servants, who kind of tip her off and say, hey, Bassett's here, he's spending the night, you might want to, you might want to hightail it out. She runs away. She stays in, you know, a sort of undisclosed location for a while. And he makes another attempt to do so. So there, and he always blames Martha. That's the interesting thing. In all of his writings, he says, Martha just won't let me alone about this runaway slave girl. And do we know if it's really Martha or if it's really him, if it's the fact that here he is, the, the President of the United States, who cannot control this 20-something-year-old enslaved woman? Uh, or if Martha is bugging him you know, to get her favorite slave back. She's not going to be her favorite slave anymore, right? She's probably going to be sold if she returns. So there is this kind of protracted um, negotiation that happens with Washington and um, with Judge and uh, attempts to recapture her, but he never does. And then he, he dies. So she runs away in 1796. Washington's dead by the end of 1799. So, you know, there are two, three years of him going after her. Remember, he's also leaving office. He doesn't want this to be a part of his reputation and really picks up his efforts to go after her once he returns to Mount Vernon, when he's a private citizen. Um, but it shows that he is very well aware in 1796 that this issue of slavery has already divided people, and that his sort of Virginia, his southern sensibilities about slavery are not necessarily welcomed or accepted in the north, either in the urban north or what we call the relatively rural north of, of Greenland, um, New Hampshire. So it's this delicate situation. Ona Judge's life demonstrates how complicated slavery and freedom is at the end of the 18th century. Yes? So given, and thank you, by the way, from beginning to end and far more, but does that not then raise all kinds of questions about, as you were describing, Judge, uh, just 
regular, everyday person who was placed in circumstances of servitude, who learned as she learned, but she also had a sensibility, and she just takes it and frees and then is able to withstand diplomacy, entreaty. Uh, how many more stories would you speculate that are out there that somebody ought to be going and looking at? Oh, there are plenty of them. I, there are plenty of them, but here's, here's the, I won't call it a problem. Here's the, the sort of difficult part of teasing out a story like Ona Judge, which is taking me years to uncover. I mean, I'm telling you all this story about Ona Judge. It's been happening since 1796, and there's no monograph written about her, about her life. And part of the reason is because, you know, the, the documents, the evidence, as historians, we need to have the papers in front of us, or at least learn how to read the papers to sort of tease out that story. I think that's part of the, um, the challenge of introducing the lives of everyday people. And that's sort of what I want to do. I, mean, I think Frederick Douglass's story and Harriet Jacobs' story and Sojourner Truth, all of those are important characters, important figures. Um, and we need to know them. It's easier to know them because they left behind narratives, right, that were published and purchased and a part of a political movement. But for everyday folks, and this holds true not just for enslaved people, but for women of any walk of life in the late 18th century or Irish immigrants in the early 19th century who may have been illiterate, if you don't leave the documents behind, it's harder to sort of tease out that story. The other thing about Ona Judge's life is it's not kind of meteoric like Douglas, where you know he becomes this superstar in the world of abolition. She's living in poverty. She's cleaning people's homes. She's scraping by without getting sort of charitable donations of wood to keep her warm. Her daughters die early in their um, early 20s, and she's, her husband is lost at sea. So she's left in her early 40s alone, poor, um, scraping by. So it's not this kind of um, fabulous story or this kind of nice narrative that we want to hear. And so for 30 some odd years, 40 years, She's doing what everybody else does at that moment to get by and doesn't leave the documents behind. But we have these interviews. We have lots of things written by Washington about her. So I think it's enough to write a book. Just a con con concluding thank you. And it was a perfect ending until you told us what happened next. <laughs> <laughs> well, but that's it. But you know, I, that doesn't, I don't think, detract from it being a perfect ending because yes, she knew what life would probably be like as a fugitive in 1796. That as an illiterate woman, as someone who was going to be on the lam for the rest of her life, she wasn't she knew what was in front of her. She knew her, her um, well-known colored friends, they told her what to expect, that she was going to be struggling 
and most folks did at the end of the 18th and early 19th century to live and survive, but she chose that. She chose it, and the other point that I really want to make with this presentation is that it was calculated. Oftentimes we talk about runaways uh, who just say, oh, I'm sick of it, and they run away, and that's it. No, this was calculated, it was planned, it was a strategic response to something that was going to happen to her. She was going to be sold to this terrible young woman who ended up getting a divorce and it was a mess anyway. Um, she was, she knew, she knew Eliza was a mess. She knew she had served her, she'd come up for the, uh, for the, in the winter time, she would have to deal with her. She knew her personality and she knew what her life would be like living with her and like I said, that marriage was short-lived. But this was a calculated decision that she made and she knew this is the moment. I'm going back to Virginia because let's be honest, she lived as a slave in New York and Philadelphia for seven years. And there's no notation anywhere of her attempting to run away. She lived as a slave and we won't call her happy, but clearly she wasn't prompted to run away until she knew things were going to change. So I think that's the other part of this, this um, story that I want to tell, that fugitives, that enslaved people were thinking, thoughtful, careful, strategic people who didn't just choose to up and run away on these sort of emotional moments. This, these, this was a thought out sort of plan and she remained technically, well, not technically, she remained free or as a fugitive until until she died. So even though she died in poverty and what have you, she still died not at Mount Vernon, not with Eliza, not with the Washingtons or their heirs, but um, living the life that she chose on her own terms. So. Yes, ma'am. I think it's sort of a self-explanatory question, but I'm just curious, uh, well, would you consider her story just as important to the overall history as, say, like someone like Frederick Douglass is? Because despite that, she was illiterate and she didn't she didn't suffer necessarily all the hardships that he did from strictly slavery, and she didn't really like make a spectacle out of her life. But what she was was more like the standard of what what a fugitive slave was, mm -hmm. despite the fact that she was the present slave. So would you consider her story like just? I think that's a great question. I, I think that's a great question. She was, she was the typical, she was the norm. Douglas was the weirdo who was, you know, his life was the one that was completely different from most other black abolitionists who ran from slavery, who um, was able to purchase his freedom, who uh, became this kind of whirlwind, well-known leader. You know, he was, um, he was not the norm. But I think we need both stories to give us a more um, nuanced understanding of what slavery and freedom looked like. That for Douglas, he, because he was famous, because he was a good orator, because he had um, William Lloyd Garrison's support, he became this famous guy. So that when he ran off to Europe, because he was scared he'd be sold back into slavery, they were able to purchase his freedom for him. No one's offering to do that for Ona Judge, this kind of illiterate woman who ran off to New Hampshire. So I think what both of their stories show us is 
the complexities of slavery, the different stories, that slavery was not monolithic, that freedom wasn't monolithic, that there were different experiences. And this is how difficult and complex slavery was at the end of the 18th and early 19th century, even in the North. And that's the other piece of the story, right? When we think about Douglas, here he was raised, born and raised in Maryland. You know, that's a state with slavery. But here she is escaping from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, not far from us now. So once again, we're thinking about slavery and freedom and geography. And I think we need both of their stories, all of these stories, to give us this kind of multi-layered understanding. But I think that was a great question. Okay, thank you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.